Hi, folks. Uh, Abby here. It is August, which is the traditional time for psychoanalysts to take vacation and for academics to start panicking about how their syllabi aren't finished. We are not psychoanalysts, but we do have some syllabi and we're giving ourselves a little bit of a break. And this week, we, with the kind permission of our good friends at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, are presenting to you an episode, a live episode of the podcast for social research. This is a recording of an event from late June of this year on the occasion of the publication of Danny Lavery's Dear Prudence book. Um, I will put a link to that in the show notes for you to procure it. Um, I was super, super happy to participate in this conversation with Danny as well as Rebecca Ariel Port and Kaylee Handelman. Um, I should say I have been a fan of Danny's writing since the toast. I can't count the number of text messages I have exchanged with dear friends sending links from the toast and now more recently the stopgap. I followed Danny's work as Dear Prudence. Um, I am a huge reader, as you will hear in the coming episode of Advice Columns. And because we talk about things like advice and transference and anonymity um, and writing letters and how they can or cannot always arrive at their destination, we thought that you, our listeners, might find something here for you. You will also hear Patrick asking a question towards the end. Yes, I, I, I was there. It was an amazing event. And I, my question was only mediocre, but you will hear me. I was there. It's okay. Our listeners have heard you ask many questions. so Many mediocre questions, but you were excellent. That was a great panel. So please enjoy. And thank you to Danny, Rebecca, Kaylee, um, and everybody at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Uh, special shout out to Mark DeLucas, who has been working his ass off on Bisser programming for the last ever with great results. We love you, Mark. Please enjoy, everybody. And we will be back soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Kaylee Handelman. I work at the Brooklyn Institute in various ways, mostly currently as editor of our erstwhile journal, Late Light. Um, and yeah, 
I was super excited a month ago when Mark asked me if I would moderate this event. And then this morning I woke up and was like, wait, why, why am I doing this? <laughs> I haven't talked in front of people in a while. I don't do this anymore. What's happening? Um, and so I was thinking about why I was so excited and like some of it was very obvious, like I'm a fan of Daniel's since the toast and, um, get the chatner, do all the things. So was super excited to meet you, have you here today. And Rebecca and Abby, I'm always happy to hang out with and talk to and hear from. Um, but then I was like, no, I think it's the advice. I think I'm just here like, cause I like something about the idea of talking about advice, giving advice, all of it. Um, but then that needed some excavation. I had therapy this morning, just thinking more about it. And I was like, oh, it's definitely because of my parents. <laughs> um, my parents are both therapists and they had an office in the basement of our house in Vermont. And so there was like a separate driveway. People would come up. Um, and it was always just sort of the code. Like you don't look out the window. You don't try to see who's coming. It's private. Right. And so I sort of vaguely understood like my parents' job is to give advice to people in private about private things. Um, but also it was a really small town and my parents are like pretty distinctive noticeable people. Uh, so it was private, but then like anytime we went to the grocery store, or the pharmacy or, you know, practice or whatever, somebody would come up and like immediately start talking to my mom about like, their marriage or their mother or something. And it would be very clear that they had been talking about this before. Um, so there was always this kind of like funny dance where I was definitely there, but maybe presumed to not be listening or not capable of really understanding, but was like definitely avidly listening. Um, and then there would be again, this like negotiation after where I was like, was that a, and she was like, you know, it was, and then we would sort of leave it. Um, and so there was this idea that like this happens in private, you give people advice in private, but the privacy thing was always like a bit of a farce to some extent. And, um, there was this allure of that privacy of these things that you're not supposed to talk about in public, um, which I think I liked. And I think I also, I liked learning something about what it was like to be an adult, like what other people's lives were like. I was in a pretty big hurry to not be a child. And um, so it was all of the sort of information gathering of like, oh, these are the kinds of problems people have. This is the way that they talk about their lives. And that was interesting. Like, maybe that's going to happen to me, or I hope that never happens to me. Um, and I think also I was just, like, in a base way, wanted to know things about other people's lives that I maybe wasn't supposed to know. There was something special about being the person that people brought their problems to. Um, and so I was thinking about it more, and it's like, oh, I think maybe that's the, the tension in the advice column, right? Which is that there's this, like, pull of other people's problems and then also this push of like, oh, I really hope that doesn't happen to me. Or like, that's not, that's not a thing I would do. That's never going to happen. Um, and so I was like, in, in that work of like thinking about it, I was thinking about, oh, there's this like really, it's this really significant role that we give people as dispensers of advice, whether they're therapists, whether they're columnists, and the way that that gets kind of carved out and treated um, is itself interesting. And so that's what I'm excited to talk about, hear a bit about, contextualize etc. And then maybe uh, practice a little bit if people are into it. So that is um, my inelegant transition to introducing our panelists. Abby Clusion, sitting next to me, is assistant professor of philosophy at Orsinus College, 
where she coordinates the Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies program. She is a co-founder and associate director at large of the Brooklyn Institute and co-host of the podcast Ordinary Happy Unhappiness. Um, definitely unhappiness. Unhappiness. Um, <laughs> Rebecca Ariel Port is a member of the core faculty at Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, and she is at work on a book about paradise, Arcadia, and the Golden Age. Daniel Lavery is the author of Dear Prudence, Liberating Lessons from Slate.com's Beloved Advice Column, and several other books. He was Prudence, Slate.com's advice columnist from 2016 to 2021, and writes a substack called The Chatner, which you should all subscribe to, and is co-founder at the new blog, Stopgap, which you did not include in your bio, but I'm adding because I love it and I'm excited about it. I'm very grateful to you, although you should know that one of the things I always pride myself on is having the shortest bio of anyone so I do sorry. an event with, and you've taken that from me. Today. I'm really sorry. I'll make it up to you. No, it's my fault for being incredibly vain about something that does not matter at all. <laughs> I could have sensed it, though. Maybe. Better intuition. Um, I'm so delighted to be here to celebrate the launch of uh, Danny's Dear Prudence book. Um, I have a bunch of things to say about advice giving and therapy and psychoanalysis, um, but first I wanted to confess I love advice columns, um, despite having endured a lifetime of Dear Abby jokes. Um, yeah. But I grew up reading Dear Abby and Ann Landers at the breakfast table and talking them over with my mom, like, no, what, what, what should they do? Like, this was, this was like sport at the, the breakfast table. And I still call my mom to ask for advice several times a week. But I also teach in a small department at a small liberal arts college, which means a not insubstantial portion of my daily life involves like sitting in my office, giving advice to 18 to 22 year olds, um, often about things that I'm totally unqualified to opine about. Um, so like here are a few questions I've gotten recently. What should I do with my life? What is it like to be a grown up? Is it possible to experience genuine happiness under late capitalism? Um, so this is like the last semester. Um, and I also read Dear Prudence and the other slate advice columns. Um, I hate read The Ethicist. Um, I was a devoted reader of Brandy Jensen's Ask a Fuck Up in every venue. Um, and I'm sure what I'm looking for in these in some way is, is guidance as well as like a sort of like what Kaylee was saying, a sort of healthy dose of voyeurism, right? Um, but also um, I assign them to my students um, because what I enjoy so much about the advice column is that I think it's the last bastion of what Aristotle would call practical wisdom. Um, so the task of the advice columnist blends the intellectual and the emotional in ways that I just find like endlessly interesting. Um, and it's that combination that brought me to study psychoanalysis. And so I thought I might say today a few words about advice giving versus therapy, um, the role of the advice columnist versus the role of the psychoanalyst or the therapist. Um, and Danny writes a little bit, I'm going to, so I'm going to quote you, um, a bit about that role, uh, of the advice columnist in the intro to the new book. He says, the columnist is nobody particularly special, except by virtue of their position, possesses no specialized professional or educational training, is not a subject matter expert, and may hold no personal charm for the individual reader. So setting aside the fact that I think Danny is selling himself extremely short by this description, um, it sounds almost eerily like what Sigmund Freud says in his 1915 essay on transference love, which is one of my favorite Freud essays, um, and which appears in the context of a set of papers concerned with analytic technique. 
Um, and it's addressed, it's Freud giving advice. Okay. So it is Freud giving advice to new analysts in this sort of mode of like, Oh, so you signed up for this. <laughs> How are we going to do this thing? And, and I, I think this is a kind of essay that probably doesn't exist for new advice columnists. Like, how, how are we going to do this? I don't know. But Freud starts out by talking to analysts about all of the things that they're going to be worried about when they're starting out. And then he's like, okay, after a while, um, let me just like be honest with you. It's all going to be about the transference. Um, so what's that? Um, the transference is the intense feelings, both positive and negative that your patients are going to develop from you in this room throughout the course of the analytic treatment. Um, and which you can't wish away because they are the motor energy of the treatment. Like there's no treatment without them. Thank you, Kelly. So Freud goes into this whole bit. Um, this is a beautiful essay. I feel like everyone should read this essay. And it's not that long. Um, about people, for people who aren't analysts, love, because this essay is called On Transference Love. It's this thing set apart. He has this beautiful line about how it is, quote, written on a special page on which no other writing is tolerated. Okay, that's right. And he's like, okay, but we, we psychoanalysts, not including myself in that, I'm not a psychoanalyst, we got to look at it differently. Um, so imagine, if you will, a situation where a patient falls in love with their doctor. But then they go to a second doctor. And what do you know? It happens again. <laughs> and then they go to a third doctor. And again, and perhaps a fourth, and you can kind of see where I'm going with this, right? Um, and so from a psychoanalyst's point of view, Freud says, you have to realize um, it's not your own personal charms. This is the part where I started to get reminded of Danny's line about the function of the advice columnist. It's the analytic situation that's making this happen, this falling in love. But what do you do, right? What's Freud's advice? Um, what do you do if you're an analyst and your patients keep falling in love with you or they keep wanting you to die or like whatever form of transfer is showing up? Um, and he says, practically speaking, like you analysts, you have to maintain your neutrality and keep a good hold on the counter transference, um, which is the feelings that the analyst um, has towards the patient that are generated in and by this, this analytic situation. But Freud says, let's just like, let's, let's do a little thought experiment. What would it be like otherwise? If the analyst was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. <laughs> like, just like, well, let's just go for it. Like I give in to the force of your desire. Um, and I don't have time to like tell you everything that he says here, except that it involves a very funny story about a priest and a dying atheist insurance agent who remains unshriven while the priest goes away with an insurance policy. Um, and in other words, like in order, in addition to being unethical, um, the analyst would not be doing their job. Um, like fulfilling the patient's desires would be a disservice to them. They would have stayed in this realm of enactment instead of transferring the, the enactment. Um, the point is that the analyst can't give in to the desires of the patient, nor can they require the patient to suppress them. So the analyst has to treat the love as something unreal, as a sort of necessary situation to be worked through in the treatment. And here's what Freud says about this love. He says, quote, it exhibits not a single new feature arising from the present situation, but is entirely composed of repetitions and copies of earlier reactions, including infantile ones. But then he's like, wait a minute, 
wait a minute, can we really say this love, this love isn't real? And this is sort of like the twist at the end of the essay. And it's like the heart of the essay. He's like, wait a minute, this is what all love is. Like all love is trans, like shit, like all love is transference love. Um, and, and this is of course, like for us as readers, like truly terrifying. I mean, I think, I think it's terrifying, but for the analysts to whom Freud is giving advice, it's something that they have to metabolize and manage professionally. Like the fact that people are falling in love with them all the time. Um, and they, so they have to manage this sort of like central, profoundly destabilizing insight. This is what I think is like the central insight of psychoanalysis, which is that human relations are basically a tangle of competing projections. Okay. So the analyst, or to take it back to the present day when most of us are probably not in, um, psychoanalysis, the therapist is this sort of site par excellence for transference. They're this blank screen onto which you can enact your infantile patterns of relating and you can come to recognize them and speak about them. Freud calls this in, in an essay that's right after this one. He calls it remembering, repeating, and working through. And it's not just the analyst. You see this dynamic with the figure of the teacher or the professor. You see it with your bartender. You see it with your hairstylist. And of course, you see it with your advice columnist, right? who is structurally in a spot that's not that different from the position of the analyst. Um, they're this paradigmatic site of projection and transference. Um, and so we, we like as readers or we as letter writers or potential letter writers or people imagining ourselves as like, am I going to write into Danny? Like, um, we connect them to use this Freudian word. We, we invest them with psychic energy. Um, and we also often invest them with a belief that they know more, um, that they can see more. And in some ways, like we're not wrong to do that. Um, because I would say that like there's a shared central insight of the advice giving business and psychoanalysis. Um, and I think it's also one of the reasons so many people hate advice, like getting advice and also really hate therapy or really hate Freud or all of those things which is that like we all might want to make these sorts of claims about having privileged access to our own interiority. Like that's a really nice reassuring way to like go about the world. Um, but like structurally, it's just like not the case, like <laughs> that you are the person that knows yourself the best. Um, and so to write to an advice columnist um, or show up at a therapist's office is a sort of, Surrender. I think of it as a sort of active surrender to what is essentially like a humbling epistemological insight. Um, I can't see myself clearly. I need the other to do it for me. Um, and so I guess I want to say that I think the advice columnist um, lives in this sort of like liminal landscape in between the like specific others. We might like I might ask Kaylee for advice, right? You're, you're one of my specific others. Um, you know, your, your friends, your family, your chosen family. Um, so that's like one, these are, these are your specific others. And then there's like the figure of the therapist or the analyst, um, you know, who's deliberately making themselves a blank screen for your projection. Um, so that this work of repeating, remembering and working through can happen. And the advice columnist, I want to say is this like third thing. <laughs> Um, it's like a person you don't know, but maybe you think you know them, um, specifically because of their personal charms, right? As expressed in their writing style and their tendencies to give certain advice. 
Um, like you choose to write to Danny as Prudence because you have a parasocial relationship with him or you read the toast um, or like, you know, on some level, he's going to tell you to break up with your partner. Um, and, and like, so you don't write to, to, to the ethicist, right? Um, there's like my theme. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but so I feel like the genre of the advice column produces for the reader a kind of person who inhabits this space between the specific and the generic. Um, and I feel like, um, there's something about that position that also means that when, when Danny says something as dear prudence, that might be the exact same thing that like your best friend tells you, um, when it comes from that third place, it cuts through, like it becomes actionable in this way that it wasn't when literally everyone else, you know, was, was giving you the same advice. Um, and, and I've been, I'm, I'm going to wind up in a second. I've been focusing on this figure of the advice columnist from the position of the letter writer or potential letter writer. But I feel like we often spend too little time thinking about the demands um, on the analyst or the therapist or here the advice columnist um, because after getting built up into this position of what um, Lacan would call like the subject supposed to know, right? Yeah, I did. I, I did that. I brought it in Lacan. I'm sorry. But this position of being imagined to have superior access to knowledge about you, um, the letter writer, like they still have to live with knowing that they're not that right? That they're a real person, um, that the love that they receive like in their inbox um, is an artifact of this structure. Um, so the analyst, like the advice columnist, has to live with the anxieties of ultimately not knowing how their interventions are going to land. Um, but also, I think in a way that's true for the advice columnist and not for the analyst, there's this super added dimension that this all plays out with an unbelievable amount of both like public exposure. Um, and also what I would call like a specifically narrative uncertainty. Um, and so that brings me to wind up with, uh, what I found to be like the rather haunting final lines of Danny's intro. Um, when he is sharing a follow up letter, filling him in on what happened when like a former letter writer, uh, took his advice and he says, quote, at least, that's what she told me ha happened. I have no real way of knowing. Gosh, so um, my mind's sort of buzzing a little bit um, after um, both of these because there's so much that I that I want to respond to. But um, uh, I had warned everybody um, in this group tonight that my my comments hopefully would be complementary to to Abby's, and I think that that will be the case. Um, so. Uh, one of the things that, that I want to talk about, um, and that I think is really, uh, more interesting, uh, the more I contemplate it when it comes to advice columns, uh, is this question of how a problem becomes socially legible in the first place, right? Um, what do we think is pressing enough to legislate in public in this way? Or what do we think is worth legislating in public in this way? And I'm also really interested just for my own kind of reasons about what makes somebody so desperate or so courageous is to be able to write a letter like this to, to an advice columnist. Um, it's certainly 
something I feel I could never do, even though I, I am at various times and in my life, somebody who is, who has read advice columns, uh, including Dear Prudence, um, uh, pretty, pretty assiduously. Uh, so I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in how you become kind of aware about the shapes that a problem can take as a, maybe a reader of advice columns, right? And, and what seems to us sort of over time or in our present moment just now, like a kind of, of, of problem that has particular legibility, um, or that may not have been legible in terms 20 years ago or, or 50 years ago or something. So, um, in order to get at some of that stuff, uh, I, I'd actually really like to um, begin sort of in the, in the deep history of advice columns. And as our event description usefully notes, uh, the advice column uh, in its modern form uh, is, is largely traceable to texts that we have from the late 17th century, which is coincident with the early rise of print culture, right? So as we have this ability um, to democratize the spread, the circulation of, of the written word, it makes sense. Um, and because uh, literacy is, is on the rise, uh, it makes sense that you would have uh, an increased ability to kind of do this legislation of, of problems in public. But, but this is a phenomenon that's been around for a lot longer than that. And while I would be the wrong person to ask about a kind of detailed or um, uh, or age by age, culture by culture sort of survey of the ways in which we've had things like advice columns for a long time. Uh, I sort of do want to take a page from, uh, early psychoanalysis, um, and say that this does have a really strong, uh, correlative in the ancient world, right? So, um, I'm avoiding, um, uh, a very, very bad pun about, about Greek columns right now, but um, <laughs> um, but suffice it to say that um, the earliest records of of something like an advice column that we really have, um, which I think says a, a lot about kind of where the authority to talk about these kinds of social problems come from, um, are really Greek oracles, right? Um, and as Avi was reflecting um, on Freud, um, I was thinking um, sort of irreverently, right, about the the way um, the, the Sphinx in the Oedipus myth um, is sort of like a fantasy of analytic neutrality in a funny way, um, right? Um, because the Sphinx is, a, is effective at being the non-human that an analyst has to at least pretend to be um, within the space of, of a session, right? And, and so that's one kind of, of way that, um, that authority can happen. And an oracle um, which the Sphinx is in, in that story, um, occupies a, a similar position, right? Um, sort of a channel for wisdom from the gods. Um, but, but one of the things about oracles is that their advice is not clear, right? Um, you think that their advice is actionable. You think that, that something can be done with it. Um, but in fact, you, you really don't know anything more than you did before about what you should do. Uh, the real yield is, is that sense of comfort, maybe, of having consulted the oracle in the first place. Um, so there is this function that, um, that I think maybe does persist in some ways in sort of present day iterations of this, where, um, the, the act of importance is to have asked for the advice in the first place, right? And the, the real kind of emotional transaction there is, is maybe not even about 
how to solve your problem, which, by the way, I don't think lets the advice columnist off the hook for giving good, good advice. So it's sort of an impossible profession in a different way from the way that psychoanalysis is an impossible profession. So um, we largely get this uh, figure of the advice columnist, um, even though it's been around um, in various instantiations for a long time, uh, from the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, which is where we get the rise of the agony aunt or agony uncle. Um, so you tell your troubles, your cares, your woes to this figure of the agony aunt or the agony uncle. Uh, and then uh, the answers get printed in the newspaper, which is the primary sort of mode of circulation uh, for advice columns uh, in that period. So uh, I haven't done a scientific study of this, but um, I did as part of preparing for this event, um, just go through sort of archives of things like uh, Dear Abby and, and other uh, kinds of um, uh, Marjorie Props, I think is the, is the name of a, of a famous British one, I, I looked up um, some of some of her work. Um, that was a pseudon pseudonymous name that I think was written by by a bunch of people as well. Um, and, and it's really fascinating just to see the variety of stuff that that gets entered into this column, and also the variety of what clearly cannot be spoken, which is often what you what you learn from um, from reading these 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 letters. Some of which are quite poignant and heartbreaking, and some of which are are much more on the order of etiquette questions, right? You know, like, um, you know, uh, my sister is divorced. I don't feel that I can sit her in, in the place at the table that she used to occupy anymore when she, when she comes to visit back when kind of divorce was this really kind of loaded uh, social issue uh, that had all of these sorts of um, other accompanying uh, uh, questions of, about social mobility attached to it. So, um, as I was, I was sort of doing this, um, I, I was sort of reflecting on what for me is kind of the er piece of, um, of, of literature, uh, about advice columns or about, uh, the advice columnist in particular, um, which is Nathaniel West's Miss Lonely Hearts, right? From 1933. So, a uh, novella with which some of you may already be familiar. Um, but what I love about thinking about that as a kind of, text within the history of, of advice columns is that it gets at this, this kind of impossibility um, of both the, the practice of giving advice, um, but also the, 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 the impossibility of asking for advice in a, in a funny way, which, by the way, is not to say that people don't get stuff out of this, right? Like, sometimes it's a good thing <laughs> that you don't get exactly what you ask for. And it's sometimes it's a really good thing that somebody gives you something that that you didn't expect. I, I want to read just um, one of the letters that Miss Lonely Hearts gets. Um, I chose this pretty much at random. It comes quite uh, early in, in the book. And um, I will say in advance that um, I hope that most of your letters are not quite this bleak. Um, although I don't know, that might be something interesting to, to talk about, about what you do when you get a letter that seems to have this degree of impossibility. Um, but uh, what do you do, right, when I, when you get kind of um, a request where it's clear that that no answer would alleviate the actual problem that, that you are being confronted with, and that some other kind of transaction would have to take place in order for somebody to derive any kind of positive benefit um, from from what you are are giving them? 
so uh, the narrator of Miss Lonely Hearts is a man who writes under the pseudonym Miss Lonely Hearts. And uh, the course of the novella is about how he sort of begins to spiral after basically confronting the impossibility of this profession. And it's worth noting that uh, West was writing during the Great Depression, right? So um, we're, we're well into this. Um, and although he himself did not, to my knowledge, uh, identify as a Marxist, um, he palled around with a lot of people who did, and he himself was quite active in at least socialist circles and um, was sort of deeply enmeshed in kind of the Communist Party of the United States's um, uh, social milieu, right? So he got invited to all the same parties. Uh, and so uh, there is a kind of Marxist critique uh, at the heart of, of a lot of his work. Um, and it's also complicated both by his own Jewish heritage um, and the way that he was kind of working through some questions about um, particularly Catholic ideology um, towards uh, the, the end of his life in particular. Uh, so all of that, I think, is stuff that you will hear uh, as I read this letter. Dear Miss Lonely Hearts, I am in such pain I don't know what to do sometimes. I think I will kill myself. My kidneys hurt so much. My husband thinks no woman can be a good Catholic and not have children, irregardless of the pain. I was married honorable from our church, but I never knew what married life meant as I never was told about man and wife. My grandmother never told me and she was the only mother I had, but made a big mistake by not telling me as it don't pay to be innocent and is only a big disappointment. I have seven children in 12 years and ever since the last two, I have been so sick. I was obturated on twice and my husband promised no more children on the doctor's advice as he said I might die. But when I got back from the hospital, he broke his promise and now I am going to have a baby and I don't think I can stand it. My kidneys hurt so much. I am so sick and scared because I can't have an abortion on account of being a Catholic and my husband so religious. I cry all the time. It hurts so much and I don't know what to do. Yours respectfully, sick of it all. Uh, and the letters basically stay at that register or get worse from here for, for those of you who have, have read this novella. Uh, and you can understand why there is such a charge uh, um, and maybe even kind of the affected charge that, that Abby was speaking of just a little while ago in being called upon to answer these things that are actually big systemic problems, right? Like even if Miss Lonely Hearts had the answer for this particular person, um, it, it would not solve many of the larger dilemmas that this letter touches on, right? Um, and they have to do with gender relations and they have to do with reproductive rights and they have to do um, with kind of sheer human misery, right? For, for lack of a more precise term. Uh, so I suppose what I, I want to do by kind of putting this um, this literary example of an advice columnist letter on the table um, is to draw attention to how uh, just in the kind of very nature of the task, um, there are all these questions that we have to raise about um, how you relate, uh, what happens uh, in the exchange of an advice column um, to these these larger problems by which it's colored, right? Um, and how you come to terms with with what an advice column can and can't do, right? Which I think is is probably something that uh, is always uh, at issue when we're talking about uh, this act of of giving and receiving advice. Mm -hmm. 
Gosh, thank you all so much. This is just so um, like thoughtful, and um, and I'm just so um, uh, you know now I'm I'm thinking of uh, Nathaniel West, and it's a fabulous book, Miss Lonely Hearts. If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, I do recommend it. Um, and, and thinking about too the ways that like the the modern advice column, as you were saying, really rose alongside like mass print advertising like the two really share a heyday and there's you know you don't have to do too much digging to kind of see the the shared sense of what's your problem we've got something for that and this kind of sense of uh like what is a shared cultural um assignation of values that you can find in your newspaper and then moving on to advice columns like in the internet age how much of that's been broken up and like itemized by like micro identities and smaller and smaller audiences and so the ways that this sort of trajectory of uh you know um those little ads now you get at the bottom of every newspaper article you read that seem both like totally deranged and micro targeted and how that kind of that's also the direction that advice has gone in which is kind of fascinating um and so I'm just really grateful to all of you for for these thoughts as I've kind of reflected on the work that I got to do both in the column and then in the writing of this book. Um, I, I think so many of these things were were very much on my mind, including um, that that general sense of looking at the advice column in terms of what kinds of problems it's socially acceptable to have, what kinds of problems are aspirational, what kind of problems you should talk about in this sort of public but also private or at least anonymous space, and this sort of change in the types of questions that people answer. I think the thing that kind of came to mind for me first was a question I would get asked a lot um, would usually be something along the lines of, sometimes people ask me if I'm pregnant and I'm not, what should I do? Um, and it's almost always someone who has been asked if she is pregnant. It's usually not, I asked someone if she was pregnant and I feel like a fool. It's almost always the person who's been asked the question. Um, and I think that's really fascinating because if you go back into like the Dear Abby and Ann Landers archives, they were not getting questions like that a lot in the 60s. And so that suggests either that wasn't happening or people didn't consider it a problem that was appropriate to discuss in the paper. And I think it's sort of interesting to consider whether, it, you know, the way people didn't talk about pregnancy in the 50s and 60s eventually created a new problem when someone you know, when people agitated enough where we should be able to talk about pregnancy, now we have a new problem, which is when we say we should be able to talk about pregnancy, lots of people are saying things about pregnancy that are hurting other people's feelings and stepping on their toes. So we've created this new problem of speech by making speech freer. And now we have to find different ways to create enough signposts that everyone should know this is a rude thing to say, don't say it. And then how do we teach the stragglers? Um, so that's, I don't know, that's just something that was kind of on my mind as we, as we moved on. I love that you've brought this to the, like, how do, how do we talk to each other point? Cause I think one of the common themes that you're all talking about is, is the, so, the sociality of it and this kind of problems of etiquette, problems of social contract and the places where they break down, right? So the, uh, the fact that the woman or the person who's been asked if they are pregnant is the one writing, not the person asking the question. Presumably the person asking is the straggler you're talking about of the sort of, um, and something I've taught, I thought a lot about recently, particularly around gender and reproduction. So it's an interesting example that kind of, uh, we have these rights sort of sometimes maybe still don't know quite know how to talk about the choices we make around them, right? Like there are these new possibilities, these new horizons or sort of more access to those possibilities and horizons, but still sort of lagging capacities or, or sort of, um, skills in negotiating them with one another. And these questions around speech, uh, 
bring some of that up. But I think this idea of the publicness is so, is so important and where we sort of, who we go to to tell us how to talk about things um, and how to communicate with one another, whether to communicate with one another. And that as Rebecca pointed out, it happens like in a form of communication with the rise of public, you know, public media and communication in that way. There were things I wanted to ask you guys about from what you said, but I feel like there's also a natural segue from where Danny left off to the question I sort of came here with, which is this one around sort of, again, new, vo new vocabularies and this idea. Of, so we have therapy, we have the publicness, and then we have the role of the advice column and the ways and what people ask and how they ask them. Um, and I've been sort of peripherally, parasitically interested in this conversation about therapy speech, therapy talk, um, new vocabularies, new ways of framing um, boundaries and relationships to one another. And I wonder if any of you see that, then if you saw that emerging or showing up when you were writing the column, if you've seen it in sort of following other forums for advice giving, probably not the ethicist as Abby pointed <laughs> out, but in, in maybe more um, amenable venues. And, and what you, what generally what you make of it, does it show up when your students come to you for advice, right? Like, does it show up in, in these public ways? So I'll start there and then maybe some follow-ups. Yeah, and I'm happy to kick us off. Um, I, again, I think this is an important moment for me to stress. I don't have a, a any training. Uh, I don't have a therapeutic background. So I, I couldn't say with certainty whether certain words or phrases or ways of talking that I did notice throughout my time at the column come from therapy. Like some of them I have suspicions. My guess is when people talk about trauma, it's usually, I, I feel safe. I think my guess is right there. Um, you know, a word that would often come up and that I would sort of sometimes like resist or push for different clarification would be toxic. I don't actually know that that comes from therapy. I couldn't point to any therapeutic tradition or any book I'm aware of. I don't know where the word toxic as it comes to be used in usually trying to refer to a really bad, but not necessarily categorically abusive relationship came from. I don't know if any of you feel like you do know where it came from. So I don't know where it came from, but I, I feel like I, I want to talk at least about kind of, you know, trauma words and trauma discourse and as they've kind of, um, uh, sort of, uh, leaked out right <laughs> into, um, into public discourse, um, in part because I, I was talking about this in therapy <laughs> today. So, um, very, very apt, I suppose, for, um, uh, for this, uh, for this problem. But, um, uh, well, I don't know about kind of the, the origins of, of toxic. Um, I do think that it is part of a set of terms often having to do with, with trauma. Um, that I think people resort to because we don't have very, very precise ways of talking about degrees or forms of pain that, that we experience. Um, and it's really, really hard. Um, for instance, I think, um, to say, um, well, maybe you shouldn't use trauma about kind of what you're experiencing here because, in fact, um, there may be other more precise terms that, that can give legitimacy to your problem um, that also don't sort of um, undo some of the useful specificity, right, of, of words like like trauma. And I, and I think that, um, sometimes things get sort of taken up as, as therapy speak, right? As, as buzzwords in the culture, um, that seem 
to describe very, very specific types of experience. But because there's this game of telephone going on, they actually get less specific the more vernacular they become. And I don't have like an answer to that, right? Or a recommendation. And I'm certainly not somebody who is interested in like policing the the boundaries of, of language or anything. But I do often find myself really wishing that we had more nuanced language to communicate various types of pain we might go through with the expectation that those can be recognized um, and and understood to be valid um, without necessarily going to, for instance, the the kind of technical language of, of trauma as as therapists might want it to to be used. Um, so I think that there's a lot of questions there, and I'd be interested to to hear a little bit more about what what you all think about that. Um, but yeah, don't you don't have to. You can leave that line there if you want. I am not the boss of you. <laughs> no, I'll pick it up. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going to go, but I'll go somewhere. Um, I feel like um, when I hear the therapy speak. Thing. It's it's generally in the sort of in the, the discourse, right? As a either like yes, this is this thing that is allowing people to understand themselves better. Let's do it, or like no, this flattens out the meanings of words and makes them like meaningless. Like if we're all traumatized, what I mean, this is not me saying this, right? Like, um, but uh, you know, so I, I feel like we we get a lot of of that, and then there's also the sort of like, oh, the TikTok teens diagnosing themselves, like, and like maybe I don't love that, but also I don't know, it's a new phenomenon. I, I don't know enough about it to be like, let's just not do that, um, because I think, you know, when I when I when I teach people things, right, and I, I do find myself on the defensive is like, you know, in 2023 and like the humanities, like why, you know, sometimes people are like, why am I here? Like, why are you trying to teach me this idea? I'm like, well, this book is so hard because there were no previous words for the concept that is being articulated in it now. And so like, it brings this into being, it like conjures it. Like, isn't that beautiful? Let's be so excited about that. Like, you know, two people are excited about that. And one of them is me. Um, but I, I think there's something that is importantly shared between the sort of like academic and the therapeutic registers of saying like, I can give you a word for something that you feel, but that is presently like inchoate or inarticulable. Um, and to the extent that therapy speak can serve that function, like there's something that I want to like preserve about that. Um, do we then get into the sort of problem of like words ceasing to mean anything like I mean I guess but like words change like that's how language works right um is like they it gets you know it turns into metaphors um they you know there's like metaphor and metonymy and association and all that stuff I mean we all know how language works right um like I, I don't understand why there is the sort of like well I, I guess what I want to say is that there's something that seems to be motivating the like let's crack down on therapy speak and it does have to do with kind with a kind of view of the world that is like you should just accept suffering and maybe shut up about it um yeah as you were fr framing that as a question it was like oh right because it's um because it's it's gendered, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, cause yeah. it's yeah. gendered. Cause the people who are using it are people who are marginalized. It's people of color. It's women. It's queer folks. It's the folks who are saying like, 
oh, I have a new way to talk about what the violence that's been done to me or the harm that's been done to me or the way that the world treats me in a sort of more general way. And we would rather they didn't. Right. And so, um, that kind of empowerment is risky and dangerous and maybe easier. You're making me much more sympathetic to it than I was before. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, um, I wanted to pick up what you laid down, Rebecca, about pain. Cause I, that it's so interesting going back to the origins, this idea of the agony ante, right? That agon, like agony is just baked into the enterprise. And so this question of like, where do we go with our pain? Um, and who do we trust with our pain is actually really like heavy and like, um, significant. And I wondered if I can throw that to you, Danny, as a question in terms of, so when people come to you with that, maybe if I can tie a bow around all of that into one question, when people come to you with their pain and some, in some sense, the pain is like, it is a person with an individual problem. And also I can imagine that I can see the ways that you really deftly handled it in the columns those problems are structural, right? Like that's just, it's the problems of existing in a certain body, in a certain place, in a certain economy. And how do you, how do you then sort of accept that pain? And, and, um, you know, Rebecca used this language of offering. We make an offering to the Oracle and then we offer advice. And so sort of, how do you sort of take on that pain and then offer something in return when it's that big, I guess. Yeah. And I, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm making too much of the work, but just thinking about what you were saying, like, I, I think you can trace the through line from the modern advice column back to like mirrors for princes and conduct books and back to Greek oracles. And you can go back to, to Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? And so fundamentally, I think what the question of language was bringing up for me is a lot of what gets asked in an advice column is what's my business. And I need you or someone else to let me know, uh, this subject is none of your business. And then I know I don't ask questions. Um, I studiously ignore something. I now know the limit. And if I say something is your business, now I have a responsibility or at least a potential responsibility and a choice to make. And I, I think of that as being connected to questions about words like specifically like trauma. Um, cause I know at least in myself, I can have any number of relations to that word. I can sometimes feel really impatient with it. Um, and, and I can sometimes feel really, um, like neutral about it or just like, yes, trauma is common. It happens all the time. It's, it's not something that we need to either build up or be afraid of or resist. It is just, uh, like bruising. It just, it happens a lot. It's how the, it's how you process, um, bumping into something else, which can be as big and bad or as small and nondescript as, as it may be. Um, but I think, you know, when a word like trauma becomes more broadly used in conversation, it also brings with it its own set of resistances. And so now you get people who sort of they hear the word trauma and they bristle because what they're afraid of is someone's going to ask me to take care of them. And because they used the word trauma, that's the word that gets them what they want. And I have to give it to them. And I want to find ways to resist that, but that don't um, dismiss someone else's trauma. So I need to now find a new word that gets me out of the question behind this vocab word. And so I think often what comes up in an advice column is like, well, I hear this word a lot now, or I hear this phrase, secure attachment. What does that mean? And if I hear it, am I allowed to have a response to it? Like, can I give a counter argument or does this word just win? And I'm sorry, I'm, I feel like I'm getting into like game theory and like, it's like the 1950s and I'm like, how to win friends and influence people and stop people from asking you for like care. Um, but I, I think really so much of that question of care comes from, do I have to? Um, is there a word I can say to reject it and still be polite? Um, can I acknowledge that someone else is in pain and still say, I don't want to do anything about it? And, and those are 
genuinely difficult questions to get at. And often we don't know when we say something like the way my friend talks about her trauma makes me uncomfortable and I don't know why, or the way that somebody else is ignoring me trying to talk about my trauma makes me feel really crazy and I don't know why. Um, and so again, all of that can be really difficult to address structurally when you're just like, here are the 40 questions you need to answer this week, have at it. Um, and especially because this was a job that involved a couple of really different modes. There's a, a live chat on Mondays, which was just like answer 13 questions in an hour and a half while all the commenters are also going to be yelling at you um, and like get it done. And then like a column that was much more like traditional. I would go back and forth with an editor. Um, it felt more like I can imagine Ann Landers doing this. And then a podcast, which was sometimes really tricky because I would feel like I'm just talking. So in that, I was, uh, I was able to like pause. I was able to kind of wander off in one direction, contradict myself, make a joke, diffuse the tension. You know, I could, if somebody sounded really awful, I could just say, you could just kill him and then say, I didn't mean that, which you couldn't do in the column. Like you couldn't do that in a newspaper column, but because you're having a conversation with a guest and you feel like, well, we're just chatting, you can diffuse attention by saying like, you should just set him on fire. And then you can kind of like work your way to a new solution from there. So all of that is to say uh, there were a lot of different ways of, of talking about problems that I, I got to kind of work through. And I think I would often, I would save the ones where I'm like, I might need to say you have my permission to kill somebody for the podcast. And I will answer the other questions that feel much more just like, yep, do this, don't do that, stop this, start doing this, say yes to her, say no to that. Um, those would be like Monday morning questions. Yeah. I <laughs> So intense. I'm also just thinking like material, like, right, it's a job. It's a job. And the fact that we economize all of these things and make this kind of labor that we do, the therapist has a job, the teacher has a job, the columnist has a job. There's all of this language that's sort of floating through the conversation that's very economic, right? The sort of offering exchange, these, um, these kinds of things, but that, that, that there's all this friction then with, with care and with responsibility and relationships that, um, I think, as you said, part of what we're rubbing up against is the like, but I don't want it to feel like that. Like, I don't want my relationship to my parents to feel economized or my, to my partner or whatever. Um, but there's also just the bare fact of like, that's a lot of work. And I wonder how you, I mean, we all have sort of almost as though it were guilty pleasure confessed that we like consume these columns and enjoy them and sort of either hate read them or sort of appreciate them. Um, and maybe this is a sort of, Pat question, but like, is there a role? Does, is this a role that should continue to exist? And if so, like, why and in what form? Like, I mean, if only for myself, yes, because it's a <laughs> lot of fun. And I've had a lot of day jobs in my life with some downtime. And it's a really fun way to kill some downtime at a, at a day job that gets slow. Um, so if for no other reason than that, but I think it's also just like a really fun shared imaginative space. And again, I don't want to make too much of like the rise of, you know, uh, advice columns and the rise of the novel. Like we're around the same time. Like, how should this young person behave? Let's invent the novel. Now we have Evelina. <laughs> now we have Pamela. Um, again, like, and the novel really ran with that. So I'm, I'm not trying to, to say that they're still like bound up in one another in quite the same way. But I think the question, what should I do is such a wonderful one because it invites other people to join you in this like, collective imaginative place. Um, and you don't have to commit to any of those things because while you are all imagining it, any of those things might happen. And I think often there's a sort of shared, slightly sophisticated understanding when you are asked to give your advice. You're kind of aware. 
there's no guarantee someone's going to take my advice. And I, I say you here, meaning like all of us, like when a friend or a new coworker or a new acquaintance, like asks for your feedback on like a low stakes question. So, you know, like, okay, they have good impulses. They're not like immediately we just met and they're saying like, how should I deal with my estranged brother? That's too much too soon. But like, they're kind of signaling to me that like, they're a thoughtful, complicated person. They have appropriate boundaries and they think of me as somebody smart. Like this is a great way to foster this relationship. Um, and so I think so much of the value in advice conversations, whether they're at the level of like a national syndicated column or, um, you know, uh, crowdsourcing advice from your friends, um, is it invites other people to act like God for a few minutes and to say like, well, if I shaped your life like this, here's what it might look like. And then we'll knock the sandcastle down at the end of it. And then we all understand we have final autonomy over our lives, hopefully. Um, and, and we'll go off and do our own things. But I think there's so much value and fun. And I think that's partly why it draws so much people in. It's not just looky Lewism. It's not just everyone's like, look at that car accident. Let's go stare. It's genuinely, it's a little bit like adult recess. It's playing with Barbies. Which actually sort of makes me want to ask a little bit about um, both kind of your relationship to the column over time. You mm -hmm. know, like, you know, how did that change either psychologically or emotionally um, or, or just from from craft uh, standpoint? Um, and, and also that um, uh, I hadn't quite put it together in this way, but the subtitle of your book in, involves the word lessons, right? And, and so there is this kind of pedagogical thing involved in the advice column. So I maybe wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you feel like you've learned from, from writing so many advice columns. Yes, Can I I'm, piggyback on that? Please, also, just piggy. one before it like flies out of my head. When you were talking about the like, okay, on Mondays we do this and then I write the column and then I do the, uh, the podcast and it was, was it 40? Okay. Roughly. So I wanted to ask, did you become more decisive? <laughs> Like towards others and, and in other, what other way, any other way you want to answer that? Yes. I definitely got more efficient and more decisive. I, I don't think ever to the point where I felt like I was just barking out orders or like the, you know, the, the, it's not the Vitamina Vegemin episode of I Love Lucy, but the one where she and Ethel are working at the chocolate factory and they like can't get it fast enough. So they're just eating all the chocolate off yeah. the line. Um, like I, I tried to avoid getting to that level of, uh, intensity, but, um, Absolutely. Yeah. At first it just felt like the, the work of discerning which questions go where, how to answer them quickly enough is just that itself is a job. And then eventually I was able to automate enough of that, that I felt like I was getting a pretty good handle on it. Um, but, but also certainly, uh, one of the things that I had to do really quickly was I had to stop reading the inbox. Um, and, and that was part of what I needed to, because again, otherwise it just feels like it's my inbox. I have to read it and they all have problems. I should answer them all. And I knew I would never be able to answer them all. So pretty quickly I said, we just need this to like feed into a document where I can go pick and choose and I don't see anyone's name. Cause that way I don't feel like, Oh, now I'm not answering Kira's question. Sorry, Kira. It was just like, I can't take that, like the, the picking and choosing questions, I can't personalize and I can't feel like it's coming into my inbox. It's coming into like my remit because then I will never stop. And then part of what was cool about that was that was also a time when they started just doing a lot more advice columns. They said, great, we'll just take the leftovers. So people were getting all their questions answered. Uh, it was just no longer coming into only one advice column. Um, and uh, you also uh, picked on a sore spot for me, which like all authors everywhere, I did not choose the subtitle. I worried about that. <laughs> and every time someone reads it out loud, it's fine. It's a totally fine subtitle. But liberating lessons feels like, boy, that that's a... 
That's a big promise. And then Slate.com's Beloved. Like, is there anything more pathetic than Beloved at Slate.com? <laughs> it's so big. And then it's so small. It's a, it's, it's a little humiliating. I wish they'd let you have a history of a young person's progress through the world. It would have been <laughs> yeah, much better. Yeah, just to lift something from, from Pamela. Absolutely. But it's also completely fine. And no one worries about the subtitle nearly as much as I do. So I, I think that's the real lesson there. Um, but uh, yeah, putting up just like necessary boundaries of time and energy. And just if I don't have time for this question this week, I got to let it go. Uh, and if I don't do that, I will stay up all night worrying about everyone's problems because there are so many, and I really don't want to do that. So I just didn't. I love it. Okay. This is a great transition to a couple of advice submissions that we got, and then maybe some questions for all of you. Okay. So question one, I have noticed that white people, I am not white, seem unaware of how much hair they shed and the ways in which that hair gets on everything. Is it rude? to ask a roommate for more diligence in picking up after herself with regard to hair? And also, how do I do it? <laughs> so, <laughs> is it okay? Also, I'm going to do it. How do I do it? <laughs> I, I mean, this is one of those questions where I think, just to strip it down to the bare essentials, am I allowed to ask my roommate to pick up her hair? Yeah. That's it. I, you know, Great. my other piece of advice would be, if you think introducing the topic of whiteness would make that conversation easier, you can. <laughs> and if you think it would be anything like a, a, a suitable distraction for your roommate to jump upon in order to not talk about the hair, don't. I like this because, again, it's a small problem, a really solvable one. And yet also, I think in the publicness, where this published, it would... Um, draw attention to a thing that a white person might not be like, yeah. like in the making of it public. There's, this, I remember at some point, I think it was an advice column. Mm -hmm. uh, black woman was complaining about how white women get on the subway with their hair still wet. And then it like flops on the person behind them in the back to back seats and how uncomfortable and rude that was. And I was like, never noticed, didn't know. Now I know not going to do it. Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit of that, like by making it public, increasing awareness among people who might l have more privilege, lack awareness, et cetera. But also, yeah, like roommates. So it, it has some of that doubleness maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly just at a really straightforward level, that's not even, it's a totally reasonable thing to say to your roommate, like just, Hey, you might not have noticed this, but you've been leaving your hair around in a lot of places. I'll point it out to you once or twice, just so you know, but I'm not going to like follow you around with your hairs. Um, but just now that you know, keep an eye out, do something about it. Um, that's, Anybody should do that. But yeah, I think it's totally useful to think, is there also in this question, maybe also I'm getting kind of tired of living with all these white people. Um, and maybe that's a question that might, again, like, I don't want to read too much into it, but if it's possible, the part of what's coming up, like, and this is the last straw. I feel like she doesn't really think about how her behavior affects me in a lot of other ways. And this just feels like the final indignity of like, oh, I stepped out of the shower. And now somebody else's long hair is wrapped around my toe. I've definitely had that moment in college. Um, we were both white. So like um, race wasn't an element in it, but I was just like going through a lot. And I had some other things I was kind of annoyed with my roommate about. And I stepped out of a shower and her long hair coiled around my toe. And I just thought like, I want to die. <laughs> I can't live like this for another second. And I need to go tell her everything she's doing wrong. And, um, how did that go? I think I like tempered a lot of it down. Um, it was fine. She was like a basically reasonable person, but it was like a good 
moment for me of, oh, things are not as fine as I thought they were. Like, yeah. I'm actually more irritated by X, Y, and Z. And so, again, like, you can just have the conversation straightforwardly. But if it also makes you think, you know what? When the lease is up, I'm not going to renew with her. And maybe I don't want to live with another white lady for a while. That would also be a totally understandable thing to want to do. I feel like I also want to add to this person, because I don't know, to me, this seems like a very obvious, like, just have the conversation, but I guess I'm a sort of confrontational person. I don't, um, yeah, I don't even think this is confrontational. I, 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 well, I don't either, but I don't either. I, I just feel like the answer is like, yes, you could, but since you are the kind of person who are writing in to ask this question, perhaps it might help you to come up with a structure. So you're like, hey, roommate, maybe once a month, we can sit down and just kind of like go over whatever, you know, that like house business, um, house meeting, you know, and at the first house meeting, I want to tell you something I really like about living with the you. compliment sandwich. Yes. It's full um, of hair. It's full of hair. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm going to envision that every time I'm now like giving written feedback on like not very good papers, the hairball yeah. sandwich. Um, yeah. And, and that's the first thing. You know, that's the first thing on the agenda. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, in advance that you're going to do that. You know, I don't know. I, I'm a big believer in acting as though people are going to do the thing that you want them to do. Like that when it's a reasonable thing, like not not like in a manipulative way, just like if you live with another person and you have, look, I have, look, I have like long hair that gets, I mean, my husband is laughing because he's like, your fucking hair is always in the drain. <laughs> uh, you probably didn't clean that out this morning, did you? Um, but I feel like, you know, acting as though the people that you're engaging with are going to do the reasonable things that, that, that you ought, that one ought to do when one shares space with another person and you both pay rent. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that's, that's a good way to enter that conversation. Yeah. And I think it's just especially challenging when it's like, uh, it sounds like presumably there's just not a relationship that often involves like personal requests or acknowledgement of really like personal intimate grooming. Right. And so there's maybe just that disconnect of we're not like that relationally, right. but I have to deal with your detritus. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why the roommate relationship is just so difficult is that question of like, what's private between us? Yeah. Because I have to see your cast off hair, which is normally something that only happens with like relatives or lovers. Right. But also you and I don't really know each other. Yeah. And I don't want to like be hearing about all your problems at work or your relationship. With, like, I don't want this to be an invitation to you telling me all the things you don't like about me. Right. So yeah, just that real fear of like, the hair is here. I want to talk about it, but the normal rules of politeness don't apply to talking to someone about their shedding hair yeah. because you're not supposed to talk about that with, you know, you wouldn't say that to a classmate necessarily um, unless it was like a real issue. Right. And I think at that point, like you would have health questions that their hair was coming out that fast right. in class. Yeah. So it's just like, we don't have speech for this. Yeah. I have nothing constructive to add except <laughs> that um, both that, that hair is a, is a somewhat overdetermined uh material item when it comes to symbolic freight yeah. um and also that i share this letter writer's absolute phobia of hair disconnected from from human oh, bodies it really bothers me for some reason so yeah matter out of place so um so yeah i can understand why this might become an issue that would loom large in, in someone's life. And I think too, sorry to like, just keep going on this one. No, but like, I this mean, is it's, why it's, it's a rich, it's rich text. There are a lot of people who I think would think of themselves as reasonably neat, 
who don't necessarily think like you have to clean the shower pretty regularly to keep the shower from getting dirty. Um, I don't want to like make sweeping claims, but there are genuinely some people who are like, oh, I'm pretty neat. I don't leave clothes all over the floor. And it's like, if your hair is strewn about the bathroom wall, I'm going to say, come get your hair before I get in the shower. And we'd both rather I didn't do that, but I'll do that. <laughs> I'll say, I can't shower. Your hair's all over the walls. Come handle it. Um, and that's complicated, but also just clean up your hair. Okay. We have a pretty good segue into the next advice. This one is a bit of like a math word problem. And so just like be ready. Um, dear Prudence and friends, I also just, this is a good opportunity to, I love the monikers people pick for themselves and, um, just to throw that into the speech we do have column. Okay. My question concerns ethics in apartment rental payments. The situation is this. My girlfriend and I plan to move in together at some point. The hitch is her current lease is up at the end of July. I, on the other hand, live in a studio apartment that I own and that, in accordance with co-op rules, I cannot sublet till December. This is a very New York question, I'm realizing. My girlfriend is keen to rent a two-bedroom starting August 1st. She makes a handsome salary. But even so, a two-bedroom-sized rent will be a lot for her to shoulder alone. Manageable, but not ideal. As for me, I make a fairly measly salary. I'm able to pay my mortgage and maintenance without difficulty, but to add to that, some portion of the two-bedroom rent would stretch my finances uncomfortably. My question is, am I obligated to contribute to the two-bedroom rent? I think, living arrangement-wise, we'll continue to divide our time evenly between the two spaces until December, when I can at last sublet my apartment and move entirely into the two-bedroom. Sincerely yours, Pennywise and Park Slope. That was really charming. And I'm so glad you read that out because it's not as bad as it was when I was reading it. And I was like, oh, July, December, two bedrooms, measly and handsome, <laughs> solve for why. I was really struggling. Um, I think I also had somehow missed that the letter writer owned their current apartment. And I was really relieved to hear that they were just saying, I'm going to be subletting it, not I'm going to be selling it. Because of course, yeah, my yeah, first yeah, no. concern was just like, don't do that. Yeah. If you have your own place, keep your own place. Um, this one also seems straightforward to me. I feel like I, 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 if the question is just, I can't really afford to do double rent for six months. And uh, it wouldn't break the bank for my girlfriend to do it. I, I couldn't quite get a read on whether the fear was... Is my, if my girlfriend's really pushing for us to split the cost, is it okay for me to kind of push back? Or was it more a fear of like, I'm worried I'll seem rude or like I'm not really excited about moving in together. And I feel like we didn't get quite enough detail to know. So we could just get to like project onto it, which is kind of fun. I also didn't have a sense of whether like, have they chosen this apartment together and already committed to it, but without making the financial arrangements, which, make, which makes me very anxious for their prospects as a couple having like not had that that conversation right or like because i feel like there's a bunch of other possibilities like what if she sublets for okay three months until so another uh do you know what i mean here's what i want to do a slight like another few minutes of close reading projecting right. etc et yeah. and then maybe we can throw it to other folks other new yorkers who might have opinions yeah. and questions okay so what I really want to read into here is there's, um, in the second sentence, we have, the situation is, colon, my girlfriend and I plan to move in together, M dash, at some point. <laughs> have an editor moder moderate so, every single panel you're ever you're, on. Right, so it's not like, 
we're definitely moving in together in December. It's we want to move together at some point. She's thinking August. I technically could in December, but who's to say that maybe what we're getting? That's what we're getting. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I think the ambiguity is in is, is in the text. I don't know. Or ambivalence. Ambiguity maybe the ambiguity is a symptom of ambivalence. That's what that's where I'm going with, with the M dash. Right. Did they both decide that they were going to move into I, I just kind of want to be like, talk to your partner. Like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I know it's kind of like a simple sort of like unask the question. Um, and it's not because I don't want to do math. It's just like, it feels confusing yeah. to me that there are all these moving parts. And yet like, there's like this two bedroom, but it doesn't exist yet. It's not like an actual two bedroom. <laughs> it's not like the, the letter writer is like, we found our dream two bedroom. It will be available on August 1st. And I have put down a security deposit of like X. Right. And first, you know what I mean? I might be getting a little too unnecessarily granular here. Um, but no, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, sorry. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, uh, uh, real estate. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, so. I do think like, what's your other option? Your other option right. is your girlfriend finds a two bedroom apartment. She starts living there in August. Right. And then you spend six months paying your own mortgage and half of the rent in a place you don't live in, that's a huge financial burden. I think it would be really reasonable to start the conversation with, I'm not available to contribute financially to anything until December when I can cover my own mortgage. Given that, do you want to go ahead and look for a place anyway, knowing that you'd be shouldering a lot of that? Do you want to sublet yourself for a few months and then we look for a place together starting in November? Or do you want to get really mad at me for suggesting that and we can fight? Right. Which is fine. Um, it's okay. But I'll just also preface this with this is one of the reasons. This is one of the things that I was really old fashioned about. I never lived with anyone that I was mm. dating until Grace and I got engaged. And she was like, I want to move in together. And I was like, I won't do that until we're engaged. Not because I think it's wrong, but because I hate moving. <laughs> <laughs> I really hate it so much. And I just, I just thought like, I'm not moving my stuff. Yeah. And I'm not going to break any leases unless I know we're at least committed to having to get divorced if we split up. It doesn't actually make anything easier. It wouldn't protect the letter writer in any way. I don't even know why I'm bringing it up because it's not going to inform my advice. Just <laughs> maybe don't move in together, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, just keep dating and have your own place. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't think they're there yet. Yeah. It, it just doesn't feel like they are. Yeah. And there's like, no rush. What's the rush? Yeah. And if, and also if their relationship can't survive like a trip to like a shared trip to like Manhattan mini storage or whatever, mm-hmm. like they're not, but like, yeah, they're I just not think like end game. I wouldn't, you know? I wouldn't ask any partner who I knew made a lot less money than me. Yeah. Hey, will you pay two rents that, for six months? Yeah. I hope your partner's not asking. And, that. and that was the thing that gave me pause is I would want to know where that is coming from, right? Like, is this an implicit or explicit part of the demand? Is this a fear that the, that the letter writer has that maybe hasn't materialized quite yet? Um, or yeah, like, how does that? Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like, oh, you got a, you got a studio co-op. That sounds so cozy. You just keep your place. Also, I noticed that there is no mention of the possibility that the girlfriend would just live. I mean, I understand, like, I, I have lived in a New York, in like a 200 square foot New York studio. Like, I, I, I get how small that is. Um, I would not want to do that again with another person. Um, but, you know, just the fact of the omission of the possibility of like, Maybe we could do that and save some, I don't know. I don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, the good news yeah. is nobody here is going to die. Like it's not a crisis mode. Yes. Girlfriend's not like, if you don't find a place with me in August, I will leave and I will put up posters with your name all over town saying what a piece of shit you are. Right. Um, so all of that's to the good. And it does seem like maybe some of the anxiety is just the letter writer, maybe not has uh, had a lot of these conversations before or is worried that they'll come across as like rude or unfeeling. And so if that's the case and it's not actual pressure coming from the girlfriend, you have a lot of room to maneuver here, have that conversation. I do think really stick to your guns of you're not going to be able to contribute to anything before December. Don't pay double rent. That's not good for you. Um, and I think if she's a reasonable person, she will hear you out and she will understand. And even if she's a little disappointed, she'll get it. Like the solution to her mild disappointment is not going to be, you put yourself in debt. It's great advice. Um, okay. Thank you. And be sure if you do both move in together, be aware of how much hair you shed. Yep. And you know, you don't have to go like nuts about it. Like don't be like constantly looking over your shoulder and putting doilies down, but just uh, be mindful of your hair in the shower. Other questions? Questions from you folks who are here, requests for advice or otherwise. Um, so in listening to you talk about the sort of evolution from like ancient times to modern times of um, advice columnists, I was interested what you might think about um, like, am I the asshole subreddits or, you know, um, sort of like online public forums where there's not one advice giver, but everybody's kind of jumping in and giving advice and all rating each other's advice at the same time. So thank you. I, I have like an immediate answer for this because um, actually co-edit a magazine called Dilettante Army. And uh, one of the things that we are trying to do for this new issue is to commission a piece on uh, AITA uh, that, uh, actually contextualizes it in terms of Talmudic debate um, and sort of like the 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 kind of working theory that I have about this as, as a person who like has read a little Talmud but is not a Talmud scholar <laughs> um, is is that there is something about that kind of adjudication process right that's not centralized that's very kind of um, you know uh, everyone piling in, um, is, or piling up, right, is, um, or piling on. Uh, it's so many prepositions to choose from, so little time. Um, but, uh, that, that that kind of, um, sort of broad, um, uh, set of cross currents of, of debate, um, actually does maybe bear a resemblance in some way to the way that we want to legislate the kind of how to live, what to do question from a kind of uh, standpoint um, of, uh, of, of sort of um, religious practice, right? Um, and not necessarily a kind of religious practice that is about any particular type of, of faith, right? Because the, the point about the Talmud is that it really is, it's like here and now, right? What do we do here? What do we do now? Uh, the law is going to be our authority on that, but, but the law is a human thing. And it's a thing that, um, that we make collectively in, in some sense, right? Um, and so that requires debate and it requires, uh, all sorts of, um, really uncomfortable forms of, of adjudication. Um, and that's largely what the Talmud is, right? Are the records of, of that adjudication. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, I, I sort of, um, can't speak definitively about what one might, might draw from that, but that I do think that, um, there's a hunger, um, in, in the kind of climate 
um, four sort of codes about how to live and, and what to do, and that people recognize, and this can have both really wonderful optimistic valences and, and really negative ones, but they have a stake in that, right? That like I too can be a part of, you know, shaping the sort of, um, you know, social and moral reality um, of my time, right? And, and maybe you could make arguments about how one sort of, um, one sort of reason that that has become so important um, is part of a kind of larger political disenfranchisement, for instance. Um, I, again, I, this is all kind of speculation. Um, but I do think that um, there is something about the particular, uh, you know, explosion um, of participation in that, in that subreddit um, and the way that it sort of gets circulated so broadly um, that, that suggests that it's hitting some kind of, of, of cultural sore spot, um, to say the least. Yeah, I, I think so much, um, everything that Rebecca was just saying, um, it's not always my go-to. And I think part of that's just because, uh, like my own sort of tastes were shaped by what I grew up reading and the kind of advice columnist that I turn to the most. But I think what's really fascinating about it is, is that it, I think the name itself kind of speaks to this, this fear about the advice column, which is like, you're not really going to be able to give me the ultimate truth because there are still codes that govern what you say. And I think, am I the asshole kind of gestures towards that of like, probably in a national newspaper, no one's going to call me an asshole. Um, they're not going to use that word. They're not going to come out and say it unless I've done something incredibly egregiously bad. I think there's a limit to how much truth they will give me. And this, what's that word? Is it like Parisiastes is like the one person who can tell you the truth. It's like the mob as Parisiastes. Like the only truth I can really count on is just like the mob is consensus. Like what does everybody think privately in the comment section? Nobody's afraid about seeming mean. They're not going to try to, I hope the, the, the idea is they're not going to try to flatter me. You'll just tell me. And there's not going to be any pussyfooting around either. You're just going to say, you're the asshole or you are. And that's it. Like it's going to be direct it's going to be um, blunt and and I'm going to be able to rely on it. And I won't have that worry that someone's saying something to placate me. I think that's, and it like organizes itself around an absence, right? Like conspicuously, it's an advice column with no columnist, but there's still like refinement um, that, that comes up just by nature of people coming back. So like you'll come back and eventually people will be pointing to, this is the best comment. We all think you should be reading this. I agree with this. This is the one. Um, or then like later refinements or somebody will come back in and say, well, here's a little bit more. Um, and so there's really interesting like architecture that develops without like one person acting as the architect. And I think that's really useful and interesting. So I, I think I go through like space uh, times where I want to read a bunch of it. And then I'm like, Oh, it's like eating too much pizza. Like I don't want to see pizza for at least a week, but it's fascinating. Um, I have a question. Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering that architecture that you're describing, like can transference happen there? Like what happens to transference and am I the asshole? Oh, like, because there's no, there's no, or there's no one Oracle. There's consensus. Like, can you, can you connect into the void? I mean, I think it's harder. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, what, what it really leaves room for, if we're, we're going to like go back to Freud here and, you know, I always am up for that, um, is, I mean, we're, we're talking about these sorts of like, like, did you say like it hits something? Right. Like for me, I think of that in terms of like, um, there's like a mobilizing of like libidinal bonds among like the community that is banding together to say like yes or like no. And the, the, 
I don't know. I used to, so I, I, I used to teach, um, I resigned from teaching this class because I really don't like it. Um, but, and I, so now I make someone else do it, but I used to teach intro to ethics like every year. Um, I didn't like it because it was, because everyone like had to take it. So, um, but I did for a while have all of my students read advice columns. So in fact, quite a lot of them read Dear Prudence all semester. Um, but am I the asshole? Like that became their shorthand for advice column. Like, so I have like a whole, you know, a nice paragraph of my syllabus. Here's some of your options. You can read Danny Lett. Like you're on, you're on my syllabus for, for that. Um, and, uh, but they loved, am I the asshole? And occasionally they would be like, can we do this like in class? So I do remember like one like deranged lesson plan. I mean, it wasn't a lesson plan. It was like a, I had a lesson plan and then like we were, I told you I'd bring up David Hume um, at some point. I've been waiting. Um, I remember this because it was like, it worked so well and got all of these students who were like really not engaged with like the question of like, what is a theory of moral sentiments? Which fine. Okay. Not for everybody. Um, but they would, they would be like, can we make up like an am I the asshole to understand like what is being, what is being done here in this idea that like, and I promise I'll only talk about Hume for like one second. Um, the idea that, um, in order to adjudicate, like in the way that Danny does, which is one of the reasons I was asking you about like decisiveness, this is like a, this is, a, this is a category I think about all the time, decisiveness. Um, cause I have a lot of impatience with indecisiveness also. Um, so I feel like I sometimes want to like hone my reflexes. I'm like, am I going to say the same thing? Or am I, where, where, where are we? Where are we landing here? Um, and regardless of whether I agree, the satisfaction of like the, the, the guidance is like just really pleasing. Anyway, the point that like in order for Hume to adjudicate whether or not something is good, like morally good or morally bad, you have to understand all of the facts of the situation. You know, we could make claims that that is not an actually feasible thing to do, but let's stipulate for a moment bracket that concern, stipulate that you can. Once you have sorted out every bit, so once you know, like, why are they not looking into subletting, right? Um, what is what is this other person's mortgage on that studio? Um, when did he buy it? Uh, you know, all of these sorts of things. Are, are they going into counseling? Have they had conversations about how their plan to share or not share, merge or not merge their finances? Once we have figured out the answers to all of the, the factual things, then, Hume says, we feel an impulse move through us, a moral sentiment, which is like, yeah or no. Like, that makes me feel like, like that makes me feel sick or that makes me feel good or like one of those sorts of things. It is literally, I am that, or am I the asshole, like avant la lettre. Like it really is. And it's, and it's very much about the vis, like it, your visceral, like gets you in your guts. Where do you feel? Like, what do you feel? Is this person the asshole? And I think that's like so satisfying because you can see is, why people yeah. loved the stocks. <laughs> I was like, Oh, this would be awesome. Like it would be bad. We shouldn't go back to no, it. But like, shouldn't. I get why it was popular. Yeah. Yeah. With the scapegoat, I mean, right? Also, literal court of public opinion, yes. right? Um, mm -hmm. I actually wonder if that is an Enlightenment era phrase yeah. or if it comes from. Well, and the one earlier. biggest transgression in that forum is not if you've done or not done something in particular. It's if you come back and you look at the consensus and you argue. 
That's the yeah. one thing that the forum cannot forgive. You can have done something pretty unconscionable, but if you come back and you say something like, I've read what everyone said here. I really took it to heart. I think you're right. I've acted wrongly. Even if you're not like, and I promise I'm going to go fix it. They're like, well, that's good. But if you come back and you're like, no, you don't understand. This is why it happened. People will go nuts and yeah. they'll be like, you came here, you asked us this question and now you're not going to like accept the question you posed to us, which is like, if you ask, am I the asshole? You must be prepared. If everyone says yes, you like the, the, in, the implied contract is you have to take it. Yeah. You cannot say we're all wrong. You asked it. We agreed. Like you, you can't say no, there's not a tornado taking my house away. The tornado is taking your house. You're up in the sky, friend. Like you need to admit it. And that's the one thing that really cannot get um, overlooked in that form. I think it's fascinating. I'm like, no, cause it's, it's again, it's the like, why do, why do we seek out the advice? What is the impulse? That's sort of where Rebecca was talking about. Of like, what do I want out of this? Is it informative? Is it genuine? And then what you talk about in the book of like, your own unknowing, right? Mm -hmm. All of the uncertainty of it. But the Oracle doesn't know what Hume is demanding to know. Like, you simply come to the Oracle, you make your offering, they give you what they can, and that's the contract. You walk away. Um, and there's an elegance to it and a sort of, um, like, some something feels transcendent and, like, universal in it, and yet I'm very wary of that. <laughs> it seems, seems maybe not that also. Um I wish I knew more about, because I feel like reading Am I the Asshole is something that so many people I know do, but I want to know, and I feel like this is related to the questions that you brought up before that are about genre, um, whether people who are readers of advice columns, and like, I don't know if there's like an empirical way to determine this, but I don't really care. I just want to like say, like, whether they're primarily people who are readers of fiction or readers of nonfiction? Do they go mostly for fiction or do they go mostly for nonfiction? And then also advice call. Like, do you know what I mean? Because I feel like what you would want out of those things or what would you would want out of the space of the advice column would be so different based on whether your primary mode of pleasure reading is actually in this sort of like imaginative space or whether it is in, in a space that is, I don't know. I'm not going to say less imaginative. I'm going to stop. Yeah. Can I ask a question that sort of builds on that or like sure. takes on these terms? I'm yeah. wondering about like this, this element, and I don't know how to quite articulate this if it's like these people are breaking the contract in the other direction or, um, but just like the one dynamic that seems at play in the am I the asshole context, and I know it's happened in some like advice uh, column context too, is people faking a problem, right? Or, or they, they fake a problem. Or they write in the voice of someone else in the life, in their life, who they think is the asshole, so they can like show that person, be like, oh, look, everyone on Reddit thinks you're a piece of shit too. Like, I guess I'm wondering what this, and there are satisfactions in that, but I'm wondering from like your perspective, like, did you find yourself developing a, a ability to detect their tells to be like, oh, this is this must be fictional, this is a little too much, or or, or I mean, how do you, how do you process that like kind of weird thing happening? Yeah. I, it's so interesting. I do get asked this question occasionally. And I think there's, there's some sort of hope or pleasure in the idea of thinking of yourself as being able to sniff out fakes. But in actuality, that's the one thing you can never prove. And so I think there's maybe this, the, the reason some people want that or want to think of themselves that way is it's like, I want to be so savvy that I can know things I'm not given. But of course, 
unless you actually follow up with someone's email address and then stalk them and go to their house and like watch them and try to make sure that they have the problem, you can't ever prove something is made up. Frankly, even if someone says, I made up this letter last week, they, that's difficult for them to prove. Um, and so I think that, uh, my, my sense is actually, it is much, much harder to prove that something was made up than it is otherwise. Um, but basically I just, my, my way of dealing with that was I just didn't worry about it. Um, so like if occasionally somebody would write in and I thought, I'm pretty sure that's the plot of the first half of Brideshead Revisited, <laughs> like down to the fountain, then I'd be like, you know, someone's having a goof. But there's a lot of books I haven't read. You could write in a lot of different plots that would just totally miss me um, or, uh, you know, use names that would be clues. And I just felt like if it's a problem and you thought of it and I answer it, I get paid either way, which is not, I think, too cynical. I don't mean it in terms of like, who cares about human beings? I'm just here to like clackety clack and get paid. I just mean, if you can think of a problem and then I think about it, it works. Like the advice column did its job. Um, I imagine there's a limit to how many people want to, like, I, I think the person who asked that question thinks of them. This is my theory about you, by the way, I might be wrong, but I think that when people ask me that question, they are more easily able to imagine themselves faking a letter than they are able to imagine themselves writing a letter to an advice columnist. Not necessarily because they think it's a bad idea, just because for whatever reason, it feels either, um, too abstracted or too vulnerable or too cheesy. And the idea of writing something fake feels a little bit funnier, but it's also like, but why would I do that? And I guess just my relationship to that was always like, if you want to do it, there's absolutely no way I could ever stop you. And the only thing that thinking, oh, I've caught a bunch of fakes would do is make me think of myself as a really savvy person. But that could just as easily be a fantasy, right? Like you can sit around being like, I'm not going to answer these 10 questions because I know they were fake. How do you know? Like you, you just don't. And <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true that it does sometimes happen. Or like sometimes somebody will submit a question to several advice columns at once and sometimes more than one will answer it. And I, I know towards the end of my tenure at Prudence, um, I know somebody published a, a long form article about how he had written me a couple of fake letters. And, you know, I remember, you know, a buddy or two told me about it. I was like, I, what I need to do is not read it. And I actually didn't read it, which is, you know, that's impressive. It's just like a, a good, that's, that's one area of decisiveness yeah. I got good at a number of years ago was just like, if I go trying to find out what people think about me, that's all I'll do. Um, and so I've still never read it. And I remember thinking like, this makes me feel a little bad, but it was also like, but what am I going to do? Like, it was important to him. He wanted to write fake letters. He got something out of it or he didn't. Um, the only thing that would happen if I went and like sought out more of that information is I would want to like control this guy's experience of me. And that's the one thing I can't do. And I guess I think just you, you can't be afraid of looking foolish if you want to yeah. be an advice columnist. It is, um, it's a self-important job. And so you do run the risk of looking foolish because you are telling other people what to do. And there's no way to do that without occasionally sometimes being wrong and confident at the same time and looking like a fool. And you've just got to be willing to do that. Like, even if it means sometimes other people think you're goofy and not to be all Don Draper, but that's what the money is for. <laughs> and um, just like one footnote to, to this question too, which is that um, sort of in keeping with the idea that, you know, it mattered in some way that that problem got framed, right? Uh, like maybe it matters in some way that the problem got framed and answered in public, right? Regardless of kind of the, the origin, right? That, that there's still like a, a yield maybe for the reader of 
of that advice column to see somebody wrestle with that, whether it's, whether it's, you know, um, the, the, the first half of Brideshead revisited and, yeah. and then, you know, somebody, uh, you know, questioning sexuality or, or whatever it is, right? You know, but just, you know, for somebody to see that, that answered in public, because it is a real problem, regardless of, of, of whether it comes from a novel or, or not, right? Because literature is another place that we adjudicate those, those kinds of things. So, um, so I think that, yeah, there's still, there is still a, a kind of readerly benefit that has nothing to do with whether anything is quote unquote true in the, in the factual sense. I just keep thinking of the, the, like, the, like asking for a friend, I'm just asking for a friend. And they're like, we could all just be asking for a friend. And there's something like, like kind of, um, nobly social in that or sort of in the publicness and in a, the self-important foolishness of it that like, there's some implicit responsibility taking in the whole, in the whole enterprise. Um, yeah. Like, is yeah. this an imaginable human problem? Yeah. If the answer is yes, and then whether, it is worth yeah. dealing with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to serve somebody in some way. And it's already served you because you got paid. But I think even, gosh, I say that and like, even that is a sort of like self-protective, like fence against someone made me look silly. And it's just also okay to say like, if somebody wants to make you look silly, they can. And like embarrassment is tolerable. Like it's a tolerable feeling. Yeah. 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 I think so. I was thinking too, to your point earlier about like morality and fiction. And like, I feel like often there's also this sort of public conversation of like, what do we expect from moral lessons in literature? Is that a foolish thing to want from a book? What does it mean to want that from a book? Um, uh, and, and I was just thinking about like one of the kinds of books that I often read and enjoy the most are from an imprint of Dean street press called the furrowed middle brow, which is like a lot of Barbara Pym also rans. Um, and a lot of them are just these incredibly wonderfully judgmental books from the thirties of like, here's all the women in my neighborhood who don't act right. <laughs> and I love it in part because the problems are so different from what I see in like more contemporary literature, which is always like, um, everyone's too independent. They're thinking of their own pleasure too often, and they're not sacrificing enough to make dinner pleasant for everybody else. And that is not a problem I encounter a lot in other types of literature. And I find it really pleasurable to read. And it's like, I read these books to enjoy watching people get their comeuppance, to get scolded by the kind of person who, if I met them in real life, I would cross the street to avoid. Like, who I'd be like, oh, you're going to yell at me. Um, but I love it in certain types of fiction. Um, and it's just really interesting that there's a part of me that wants to see like fictional people get scolded. Like I want to see like the end of what's that? Movie? The bad seed. And at the end, like the kid gets like spanked just to remind you, like you shouldn't murder everyone. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, thank you. Well, it's kind of like, um, world reduction, right? So Frederick Jameson has this term in his book on, on, uh, science fiction and, and utopia, um, that is sort of about how like no kind of fictional utopia can sort of capture or respond to everything that is, you know, wrong with the complexities of, of this world. So it like picks one thing to, to talk about. Um, right. Um, so yeah, like, you know, the, um, well, I could give a lot of examples, but, um, but I won't. Um, but, but I think that there, there's a real pleasure in kind of world reduction in your moral universe as well. And like, we are surrounded by so much uncertainty and so many instances in which kind of good judgment is impossible just because we don't have all the facts that you yeah. would, would want us to have. And so you feel like you're a swim and complicit in this sea of bad judgment. And so one of the things that I think, I mean, I think that take on, on Pim is just spot on. And I think that that pleasure is, is very much about, 
like, you know, um, poetic justice in, in the classic sense, right? Like I want to see good rewarded and, and evil punished. And I don't care how petty, uh, the situation in which that happens. Frankly, the is. pettier, the better. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and, and I do think that's like a real pleasure, right? And there's a real aggression maybe in taking pleasure in that, but I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that either. I was just going to say, I feel like there's a quality and maybe it is the pettier, the better. So like, I'm thinking about like your, the podcast, which I feel like has a very different voice in some ways. Um, and maybe because your actual voice is there, but it's so soothing. Do you know what I mean, like, I feel like this is like one of the, one of the like effects that we have not gotten to yet. And it is something somehow related to what you're talking about, about like this sort of like the moral universe is coming back into order you know, someone is posing a, this, this is my experience with the podcast. It's like someone is posing a question to Danny and they are in a position of like vulnerability. And Danny is going to be this sort of containing figure, reflect and mirror things back. And then there's going to be like, it's not like a tying a bow on it, but I, as the listener who is not being addressed, but am also being addressed, I'm going to feel soothed. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I, it may be about morality, but it's got, it's got to be about, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive at all. I think they go together. I think my final thought will just be, if uh, the description of that type of literature interests you, I recommend O. Douglas's The Day of Needful Things. Um, That was the pen name of um, the sister of the guy who wrote The 39 Steps, whose name escapes me. But yeah, she wrote some pretty fantastic domestic fiction, most of which has been republished by the furrowed middle brow and is uh, great stuff and worth checking out. I think that's about about as good a place to end as any. Thank you so much for doing this, all of you. Thank you for the book. Everyone should buy it, read it, etc. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. This has been a special episode of Ordinary Unhappiness because it was, in fact, originally a live episode of the podcast for social research. We'll be back next week with more Ordinary Unhappiness. Theme music by Formal Chicken.